You're listening to Six for Summer, a radio book club created by the Prince George Public Library. Tune in to CFUR 88.7 FM to hear us discuss a new book each week while we explore what it means to be Canadian. This initiative is made possible by the Community Fund for Canada's 150th, a collaboration between the Prince George Community Foundation, the Government of Canada, and extraordinary leaders from coast to coast to coast. The Prince George Public Library is situated on the traditional territory of the Claitley Tenay, and we offer our gratitude for the land that we gather on. Welcome to Six for Summer, a radio book club. I'm Darcy, the Outreach Librarian at the Prince George Public Library. For the last few weeks, we've been inviting community panelists and library staff to participate in a discussion about a different Canadian book and how it relates to Canadian identity. For our third episode today, we're discussing Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, and it is the most beautiful post-apocalyptic dystopian novel you've ever read, according to me, and maybe not all of our panelists, but uh, it's set in present-day Eastern Canada. So I'm just going to turn it over to our panelists now and let them introduce themselves. Uh, hi, I'm Brian, and I'm with the PG Council of Seniors. Hi, I'm Margot, and I'm uh, up at UNBC, and my accent is from New Zealand. Mm. <laughs> I'm Gillian. I'm the coordinator of the Heart Branch of the Public Library. Excellent. So thank you for joining us. So just to give a very brief reductive synopsis, in Station Eleven, basically what happens is there's been a fatal outbreak of what they call the Georgian flu, and it kills within hours. It wipes out a, most of the world, pretty much. The novel is written through flashbacks and uh, present day, and it follows the stories of some of the survivors, though most of them, many of them don't necessarily survive at all. One of the main things, there's a traveling theater group that goes from settlement to settlement performing Shakespeare, and over time, we're shown how some of the individuals are connected, and throughout there are um, many insightful moments about art and survival. So with that, we're going to launch into questions, and I think I'm going to start with the easiest one. Did you all like the book? Mm. I love the book. Why? <laughs> Jump in. <laughs> I was so excited about this book because I'm terrified about the apocalypse all the time. Even though I walk around looking just fine, I think about this stuff nonstop. So to have a kind of guidebook was very helpful. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it's about art, and I like art. Mm-hmm. Anyone else? No, I thought mm-hmm. the book was a waste of time. And it was, Do you consider uh, this a waste of time? No, I don't. No, I don't. This isn't a waste of time because I'm curious to hear what other people Great. have experienced with the book. It's not a topic I normally read. I was glad it wasn't Mad Max stuff. Mm. However, no, I thought it was. Uh, I thought it was really soft and weak in a lot of areas that mm. that could have been quite powerful in terms of human connection and resiliency. Mm. And I found it confusing because of the back and forth and. Uh, as much as it seemed to decide for us or illustrate that there are less than six degrees of separation mm-hmm. with people, I really was at a loss about what what this whole what the book what the story it was a story. It had a it just dropped open and dropped closed. It mm-hmm. was and it was uh, some snapshots, but they really I thought I thought she missed a lot of opportunities to make it uh, a much more powerful reading experience. Mm-hmm. Well, I also, I really enjoyed the book. I found it incredibly thought-provoking. So that was one of the things that I found myself thinking about the book a lot in between reading it. So I, uh, and I found the, I quite 
I spend a lot of time sort of thinking about complexity and time and history and past, present, future. So I really enjoyed the juggle back and forth and the fact that you were sometimes getting to know people's, you were actually getting to know their past informed by their future. That was one thing that, um, the other thing for me that was really powerful about this particular book is that I'm still getting to know Canada and these landscapes and I found the character, I found that the landscapes were kind of an unwritten character in the book that I really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that surprisingly enough, I really found myself in the first chapters, which open in Toronto, I was very excited by the fact that it was invoking a place that I've come to know and these experiences were rolling out in landscapes that I knew and I was trying to think, how would I have related to this if I hadn't been there? Um, So I found that a lot throughout the whole book of trying to imagine where the activities were taking place was quite, I found it really helpful and interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, I love the book, (laughs) which my little introduction (laughs) revealed. Um, I run a book club at the library called Books on Tap, and we read Station Eleven a few months ago. Mm. And I told everyone, I was like, so we're reading my favorite book. If you don't like it, you're out of the club. (laughs) Um, And most of them liked it, but... uh, (laughs) Some of them don't come anymore. That's right, yeah. Yeah, we don't talk about it. Yeah, it's one of my favorite books in the whole world. It's like a book that when I talk about, I just want to like put my hands or the book itself to my chest and like mm. hug. Mm. I mean, that's a real heartfelt experience. Yeah. Thank you. It's hard so. for me to express emotion towards things, so I'm, I think I'm just clinging oh, yeah. to this book. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's working. I'm a person. <laughs> I'm really glad we have the extremes, though, to talk about today, that Brian didn't have a great experience in that. Yes. Some of us had really happy experiences mm-hmm. reading it. Well, it's interesting because I grew up in Toronto. Oh, wow. So those first couple of chapters, I knew exactly where was where, what was what. I've been to the Elgin Theatre and seen stuff. I was a paramedic back in the early 70s and 80s when the program was just starting in Toronto. Wow. Uh, so I was one of the pioneer group of that sort of thing. And here's wow. this guy uh, with aspirations of wanting to do something. And he's actually doing something with Arthur on the stage as Arthur dies. So those kinds of things, it was it was kind of neat per se. But I actually, in reading the story, I don't think there's much Canadian. Uh, landscape it seems actually it's hard to figure out King Carden I went to as a kid to a cottage so I knew that place but otherwise my sense was that this was technically in the states yeah uh, so it had nothing to do with Ontario or Canada which was fine because the landscapes the one there was once a note in the story made about no more boundaries no more lines Mm -hmm. and and I thought yeah finally so what does that do what does that allow for and yet people characters communities are making other kinds of lines yeah Uh, which you know is that part of our humanity or is that part of it's because it's only 20 years Mm. we have not unlearned everything that we had going on Mm. beforehand so is this just a continuation in a in a uh, more primitive matter a manner or is it is this something that we do mm-hmm. and and that we have those lines and we say some people are okay and some people can't mm-hmm. be or we got to move on I, I think that's, that's yeah. a really good the line crossing and trying to because I've become so interested in these landscapes the fact that we were losing those boundaries I found really fascinating and yeah I, I it becomes was, more about the lake shore than it does <clears> about <throat> are we in Canada or the states yeah and that so what I was instead again I was 
I was experiencing things that, for example, the fact that people were following waterways, which is something that I think is, was evoking other ways of being in these places, and that boundaries, the borders, didn't matter anymore, mm. as you say. Finally, it's an interesting thing to ponder. But I was really conscious of the fact of me trying to figure out at what point were they in Canada and what point were they in the United States, which is a good example of how we're just so we're, we're so trained to think in these boundaries. And as you say, a whole lot of different kinds of boundaries popped up. Mm-hmm. But I was struck by the fact there was, an, in this post-apocalyptic world, there was a drift south. And mm-hmm. um, and how, as somebody that's come to live in Northern BC, um, and to be experiencing true, you know, well, I feel like I've gained a season. I grew up in a place with four seasons, and now I've got another season, which is real winter. <laughs> <laughs> I had four seasons before. So, what? How people would have been navigating winter um, and different dynamics in this um, phase, a little bit like you, Jill, the, mm. the sort of cues for how to think about what we do need and what we don't need in, these new, in this kind of new space, I found, again, really thought-provoking mm-hmm. and helpful. I like the fact that she didn't try to neaten up all the boundaries or the character. There was a lot of ambiguity in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, I like, I, I live and work in, the, in very ambiguous spaces, so I liked the exploration of ambiguity. Yeah, I like that there are gaps because we bring our experience to those gaps and you yeah. live inside and build your own pictures there. But I know that some people were very frustrated by that. I know my husband was really conscious when he was reading this book about the timelines. Yeah. Like, would that fit? Or with what they would have, would, would they have airplane gas? What are the details? Yeah, that's and right. this author does leave a lot of spaces. She doesn't say, well, they used this, this, this. They didn't use that. There were these years where there were hardships like this. There are mm. big spaces where she jumps from time to time. And I think that's where the leaping about forward and backward in time is very useful for her. She doesn't get bogged down in details. Yeah, true. Yeah. And yet I think it was a bit realistic too because there's going to be gaps. There are yeah. now kids being born who are post-apocalypse. Uh, so they don't know how to relate to planes and internet and all those kinds of things. Kirsten is having a memory block. Which she remembers Arthur, but there's there was that trip she took with her brother when when her brother eventually died or whatever that she doesn't remember. Mm-hmm. And he told her, uh, I think by the sounds of it, he told her frequently, just don't bother remembering, just let it go. Yeah, and I'm glad uh, I'm glad yeah. you don't remember. Yeah. Those, so um, there's so there are gaps that were natural, <laughs> and and um, and yeah, she didn't because you can get lost, I think, in this kind of story and just detail. Yeah. About yeah. how does how do people survive or the community or and, and what do you pick? Yes. <laughs> but so she was very careful, I think, thoughtful in avoiding a lot of that. But it also is like, yeah, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> how does this connect her? That doesn't make any sense. Or, eh, so. Yeah. And there's um, this moment kind of near the end of the book where Saeed is talking to like the group who's abducted them and he uses the term pension. And then the yeah. person's yes. like, what's a pension? Yes. <laughs> and that was kind of one of those moments where I appreciated that small little detail because she did bring in like, you know, the normal ways that we speak and how, you know, like whatever, 20 years later, it's like, you know, it's still like in his speech and mm-hmm. it just fits in. And then there's someone who's like, what? 
sorry, what a what? Yeah. So I kind of I liked that, but but yeah, she didn't go into a lot of detail sometimes, but there were moments where Well there were characters who yeah. were fixated on it. I think Dieter was one of those guys. He was almost like a, a touchstone for the past. Mm-hmm. And Kirsten was a touchstone for that bridge mm-hmm. between the past and the future. Mm-hmm. And then there were characters who were born in the future. Mm-hmm. And then um, Clark with his museum of um, natural history. <laughs> natural history, yeah, yeah. collecting yes. all the artifacts and um, the artifacts like iPhones and stilettos, yeah, and, and motorcycles, and yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, credit mm-hmm. cards, yeah. and and those moments where like, what are we going to do with this? Oh, we'll go and put it in the museum. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so things that would have been really precious and important suddenly they're just these very, they're just they're display artifacts, and and also a point of discussion and and information. I I found the transformation of the Clark character quite endearing he was a pretty annoying character for quite a long time and then he, um, uh, he yeah well he was just <clears throat> I mean he was purposefully being framed I think in a in a way that was a little bit there was a, a clear sense there was a dimension to his personality beyond what you were seeing and then finally some of those things kind of manifest in his it, but that was that, that to me felt like a very rapid progression of his character just at the end um, as he was once he became the Overseer of the Museum of Civilization and shaved off his hair and let his let himself kind of become a different version of himself. Yeah. That that transformation of character was quite endearing, I think. Whereas some people were really stuck on the past, yes. his character really unfolding and and becoming more humane as he as he went. I've, um, it's humbling. I think an apocalypse yeah. would be deeply humbling. Oh. Some people don't survive the change, you know, and Clark finds a new self to be, I think. Mm-hmm. But all of the characters are, I found them very interesting. And some of them are, I found Kirsten fairly annoying, actually. Mm. Oh. Yeah, why? I know. Um, she doesn't change or grow, I don't find. I find that she sort of fixates on Arthur in the past, and she's got a role in the caravan. She's going to keep that role. And she carries on through the adventure and out, and I feel like she's just going to keep being that same person. And that's fine, because she's a bit of a bulldog, and I think you have to be to survive. But I would say that Miranda was my favorite character. Yes. Mm. Yes. I really? Too. Yeah. Oh. What an airhead. <laughs> not you. No. Her. I, no, I, I just take I, it that I way. could not figure out what her attraction was to Arthur enough to get married. Doing the Station Eleven. I'm <laughs> sorry, I've lost the term of the comic. The graphic novel. Graphic novel. Yeah. Uh, which <laughs> in and of itself is fine, but it became her organizing principle. Yeah, it really did. And mm. uh, and in fact, the the what would you say transposing of where she's working or where she is into the story with with actual placement of, of physicality and, and sometimes people but just changing their name and things and then uh, you know you mentioned about about uh, Clark's character I think the author when I when I was listening to you I think the author did that with every character there's a bunch of stuff we don't know that mm-hmm. would be important and we don't understand we don't have insight into their transition uh, the catalyst for transition, we see an end result or something. But there's a lot of open-ended stuff. And it's not a snapshot either, because even what we do get is not well-defined. Mm-hmm. But no, Miranda just it was like, come on, sunshine, uh, <laughs> what's going on here? Yes, he helped you, Arthur helped you get away from Pablo. But then what did you do? You know, he just kind of glommed on by appearance. It's, it's all... Um, 
implied. We I think I read her really differently. Like I found her to be a really introspe- introspective character and also mm-hmm. deeply shy, maybe even pathologically shy, mm-hmm. because that's what she escapes into Station Eleven throughout mm-hmm. her whole life more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, what I think she saw in Arthur was home because they were from the same small island right. on the coast of BC. And I think she did see a bit of a savior and realized he wasn't a savior. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people take a long time to get out of these situations. But she recreated herself into this business person mm-hmm. and traveled and traveled. And then when we were talking about borders, it made me think about Miranda because she would fly all over the place. Mm-hmm. She would go on ships. And when she dies in the most terrifying, mm-hmm. alone way, mm-hmm. it seemed very in keeping with her character because she's a yeah. very alone character, even if she, when she's with other people. I think you're right, the organizing principle for her life was Station Eleven. And there's something to be said about art and how it can be a life raft. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to me how her art is almost the greater part of her because she has such an effect on the other characters through that Mm -hmm. rather than individually impactful. But again, not personally because she didn't didn't have a lot of... I didn't think she had a lot to give. She didn't have a lot, yeah, she didn't have a lot of influence on people per se. Not not in a one to one face to face. I think there are people like that with though. With her, her graphic novel. Yeah, I think I really uh, enjoyed you know, the fact that she her influence was in, ended up being through. It, well, it was <laughs> kind of one. It was kind of a, a an ongoing endure, enduring thread. It yes. was, and yeah. how <clears throat> how she unfolded the the Station Eleven link. I found myself being markedly unsurprised when the we end up encountering it with the prophet. The prophet. I sort of felt like I would. I almost when when we got to that point in the book and this Station Eleven thread mm. um, surfaced because it I mean it's the name of the book and and obviously it was a very purposeful thread. I was very unsurprised, and I I wondered about that. I wondered if it was supposed to be a moment that was slightly more kind of climactic in the sense of aha now it all makes sense um, some of these connections. But yeah, like you, I really I love the way that the the influences on the characters across past, present and future were not all linear mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't see li- I, I see characters and lives unfolding in very unlinear ways mm-hmm. so it's deeply circumstantial and, and indirect and things turning out in ways that seem completely absurd I mean the whole uh, reality being stranger than fiction piece so I quite liked the fact that these characters that were far-flung and interacting in these indirect ways, there was a logic, but I didn't find it unbelievable. Mm. I found it um, certainly a stretch mm. at times, but mm. I quite liked that unexpected ride. <laughs> the stretch for me was the, just the degrees of separation. Yeah, that, the whole Arthur Leander. percent of the population dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, how was it that there was such a tight critical mass of people who would be connected? Mm. I was curious about that. But I found that I thought the the book, the whole book, to me struck me as being. This is one of the few times where I've read a book that it seemed to me like a uh, a script for a movie. Oh, and, I bet she'd like to hear and, that. And hmm. uh, well, it's just that there are snippets, there are sides. It's almost like a Shakespearean play at times. There are sides going on, like the interviews with the uh, publisher and, and different things that I could. I was I was having this this visual thing going on around. Okay. I can see them doing the camera work of all of a sudden we're pulled into this interview thing and we're getting some background information and we're getting some character development and then we get into the travelers or we get into something else. We keep being moved around, mm-hmm. but to me the reading of it didn't work nearly as well as what I was envisioning as, as a very, because they didn't need Mad Max exploding all over the place. No. This was a very calm, so to speak, uh, way of, of living in the apoca- post-apocalypse 
that would actually allow us to see the characters mm. and their stories because by moving as she did in the writing, we could see previous, present, perhaps some future things going on, like at the end mm. uh, with the with the light grid and that, you know, it's kind of like, oh, okay, now we've got some future thing happening here and, and yeah. we're left. Mm-hmm. But I could, it really, whereas normally I don't, you know, books rarely translate well into movies. And I thought this one, but in under the right hand, would do really well. That's really so neat that she created a movie in your head because I think if this would have been written traditionally where you follow one or two characters through the course of their lives, you would miss out on so much. You wouldn't get all the nuances. Mm. Like There's one section in the book that is just a list of all the things that were lost that was heartbreaking. And it makes it more of a love song for humanity. Like, what do we lose when we lose ourselves? I think the book wouldn't do those things if she filled in all the blanks. But yeah. by pulling in all the different people, by not naming everyone completely, like some people are called the cl- first clarinet, mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> nice. you know, and also by not, by using the different techniques, you know, the interview and also going from the past to the future, you get more aspects of everyone's characters. Yeah, I, I found the, the notion of, of loss, because clearly it's just yes. an underpinning of the entire book. Having loss spoken and unspoken, so some of the most powerful losses are not are left very cryptic. So the the very obvious one being the the tattoos of the knives on those women's wrists, and those tattoos coming to learn what they meant and coming to learn. I I was intrigued whether that was just something that those two friends did because I don't think although we do know that there were some other people with tattoos of knives on their wrists and it had it was invoking this horrendous act so you certainly you're aware that somebody like Kirsten has probably given her skill with knives had many more she's probably killed or maimed or hurt or been saving herself from many other grim things that she can't remember but this idea of needing to document that which was not calm and to be... I, w- I found that a very powerful metaphor and that people were saying, yes, I have killed this mm-hmm. many people. And given that you're not going to have any prison or police or you're not going to be rounded up, and, and obviously the communities might choose to punish people in different ways, but obviously killing somebody in this space had been, particularly in the early years, something that was had been normalised, and yet people didn't want to normalise it. So there was just this sort of that notion of confession and owning up and carrying that with them and on display so that other people would know. Um, mm-hmm. well, it was a warning, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was definitely others, a warning. Because others knew how to yeah, interpret yeah, it. True, they knew yeah. what it meant, so it was like... I'm curious. I don't know. I, don't, I, I meant to go back and reread some of those sections about whether others would have known. There whether were it was others who recognize it because a couple yeah. of them asked her. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And the, it would be a different book that focused on the time of mayhem, like right afterwards. Yeah, Jeevan's an interesting character for that reason because he holds up. He yeah. <laughs> finds out this is happening on the night of the outbreak and just fills his brother's apartment with food and water and stays. And who knows if that's realistic. Some people might argue that it is and it isn't, but mm. he like he doesn't have the same kind of trajectory. And if afterwards, if this book focused on the mayhem that happened in Toronto, yeah. the people trying to get out of the city, it would have been a totally yeah. different book. But what was so effective for me and haunting, and I've thought about this so many times, are all the cars full of dead people that block mm. the expressways trying to get out of the city. Ugh. Mm. Ugh. Um, <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that I 
think about, because I've read this book twice now, and I always go back to the beginning with Jeevan, where his um, doctor friend is, like, calling him, and he's like, you need to get out of the city. Yeah. And so then he goes, and he's kind of like, hmm, and starts getting all the food. And I always wonder, I'm like, would I be that person, or would I just die? Like, would I actually, mm-hmm. would I blow that person off, or would I mm-hmm. kind of embrace that panic and be like, mm-hmm. this is it? Because I yeah. feel like I don't think I would listen to my friend. I'd be well, like, wow. Well, there was the one news announcer who told his wife to grab the kids oh. and take the back roads only. Yeah, that made me cry. That, but that was also sound advice because otherwise everybody else is taking mm-hmm. all the main roads and the logic of that is, is evident very quickly. That yeah. yeah. It's, well, it's, it's a death sentence. It's like, I guess the main, the main thing I started, I was connecting this to with as um, uh, The Walking Dead um, because it's, you know, post-apocalyptic zombie Mm. stuff um it's you know pretty gruesome and it's supposed to be focusing on the characters and what happens after but it's also i think a lot of just like shock Mm -hmm. factor Mm -hmm. um but yeah one of the main things that i that i was picturing too is like the highways filled with all the cars with dead bodies and yeah and and you start you go through them like you rifle through their dead people's pockets Mm -hmm. and you know it was their cars it was a very clever uh remnant it was kind of like a ambient societal skeleton these ideas of you know these these metal forms and these literally these car carcasses lying on all of those highways and 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 the way that it wasn't clear where people were going or what they were trying to do or where yeah. they were trying to get to and just and the fact that there is no away there's no away and i mean that's a lesson that we have to learn all the time anyway so again that the way in which the apocalyptic sort of scenario is reminding us of what it is that we need to do more now and yeah. what it is that we need to take notice of and what it is we need to care about. I really love that one reviewer's comment about um, the idea that it, it made them homesick for something that they hadn't lost yet. Yeah. And I found that to be, that actually stuck with me The for most of the book is the way in which it was, this was making me think about now in a, in a way that I I think was really helpful and yes. it was also making me think about relationships and connections and mm-hmm. things that actually I'm quite critical of but it was allowing me to feel strangely nostalgic about them which I found really refreshing I mean that that imaginative power that she could make me feel nostalgic <laughs> for something that I don't much like care about <laughs> yeah well and there I feel like there's a lot of she has a lot of good lines in this book too um like they're the one that I keep thinking of it's like talking about Kirsten and then she's kind of she's falling asleep she's having trouble sleeping and the chapter ends with hell is the absence of people you long for yeah Mm. Um, and that's kind of stuck with me like just even you know in my life I've moved a lot and Mm -hmm. I always like leave people behind and I kind of like I'm always grieving for like Mm. part of it and so it that I mean not like not like it's the same as what she's going through or any of them but that always sticks with me because it's it's it is that importance of people and connection Mm. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really prescient book. I think this is on our minds, you know. We have all these zombie movies and zombie stories, but really we're we're afraid of losing what we have, and we're afraid of change, and we are on the cusp of change. It is so much so that, like, my child, when he was very small, looked at our canoes and said we would be fine. He just thought, he was already thinking of a way out, and I think that that's what this book does make us think of, is what is a way out, and what if there's no way, Mm. right? But it also illustrates how fragile everything already is anyway. We have have this notion that... It, everything's very substantial and solid and, and, and it's going to be around and all this and 
all all this everything we live with was gone within yeah. within a few short days of uh, cascading <clears throat> things happening. Oh yeah, that, think of the just, people in the airport. They yeah. were waiting for the authorities yes. to come. Wait, yes. They never came. Yeah. Everybody no. was dead. Yeah, there's that one airplane. <clears throat> oh, yes. that's terrible. The yes. that, that, they never that was a unique place. idea. Yeah. Yeah. To just write that in there. That, yeah, because yeah. yeah. you have to wonder, like, mm-hmm. were they infected? Mm-hmm. Or did they just give them the death sentence mm-hmm. by keeping them? And right. then those airplanes in. that took off yeah. looking and you never yes. know. So yeah, two yeah, things that haunted me was was this act of not knowing. Mm-hmm. So uh, we live in a world where we expect to know. Mm-hmm. We don't expect yep. to be stranded from information about mm-hmm. people or things that we care about. Yeah. And that's that's both got its flip side because we're also completely overwhelmed by all this information Um and we're also, interestingly, I listened to another podcast uh, while I was reading the book about the way in which um, people's hyperactivity in terms of interaction and being able to know everything at all times means that you, you never, you're, you're being confronted with the burden of choice a little bit more because you know more about what you've chosen not to do. So that could be not to go to go one weekend here or not to do this or to move cities and you're, you're being confronted with all the things that you've moved away from. So in our world, we're constantly confronted with the other side of our choice. Whereas in this world, they don't have any access to knowing what it is that they're not part mm-hmm. of. Yeah. So they're, they're actually, there was a presence about this. There was a living in the nowness, which they obviously had to cultivate yeah. in order to stay sane. And some people couldn't uh, and did go mad, understandably. But I found that the living in the now piece and not even imagining what it is that other, not even being able to think what would have happened to all these people that we care about. Mm. or, or the, And knowing that we're probably not, going to be able to reconnect with them it was yeah. it was really yeah. powerful yeah. so it made me appreciate it made me appreciate some things that I get frustrated about with the sort of hyper information pathway but the other thing that I didn't totally didn't expect and I don't know if it was intentional but what is clear about this book is the infrastructure remains the infrastructure yes. is all there. It's the people yes. that is missing. Yes. So it was one of the most sort of, there was this real aha moment for me when it's recognising that although we live in a very mechanical, digital, very you know information age, that's all driven by people. And so that when mm-hmm. you take the people out of the equation, all of the infrastructure was Rather there, than, waiting yeah. to be rebuilt, redone. Everything yes. could have been done, but all there was the no people to do it. There. All the yeah. information was there. Yeah, There's nothing to stop the electricity coming that's on right, again, yes. except there was no people to do it. Yes. And there was no people to run the airports. There was no people to be the doers. So it sort of re-peopled infrastructure for me in a way that by I... By taking it all away. By taking it all mm-hmm. away, oh, you realise that it, it's still, it can still be there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just that they haven't got enough people. So at the end of the book, when you get this hint that mm-hmm. the information or the, the technologies might be able to come back, of course, because all yep. of that, there's nothing that's been lost, actually. It's yep. just there hasn't been enough people to do the work. And I, I really found that very powerful mm-hmm. because it, it rehumanized information and technology and infrastructure in a way that's I hadn't great. imagined. Mm. Mm-hmm. I, I like too, like there's a little bit of denial like in it too, like when, mm. when everything kind of, you know, when there's this scene where there's a, they're lining up to use the payphone in the airport and Clark goes through all the changes that he has. He's trying to dial every single number he could remember. Mm. And then there's this part where he's talking to imaginary Robert, his partner, and he's imagining talking about 
he's like, oh, you know, remember when that happened yeah. when the lights went out, like, in the airport and having this conversation, even though he, like, he's never going to see him again. He never said goodbye. He was just on an, mm-hmm. you know, airplane and then he's gone. Um, yeah. And I think, and one of the, the big things that I've been thinking of in relation to that is that there's this point where, like, in order for them to actually move forward, I think they had to completely lose hope. Yeah. Um, because, it, you know, even sending off the airplane and trying to make phone calls and stuff, and it's like they're still like, oh, there's always hope. They're waiting to be rescued. But you kind of have to give up. Um, and that, I think that's what they had to do is to actually just give up. And then yeah. they, and then they had something to hope for, something different, because they were waiting for what it used to be like. But that was never, ever no. going to be the case. So. No, there's layers of collateral losses that are going mm-hmm. on. And, and, and that's, what, yeah, that's one of them definitely is... When, when do you do that? Because then in giving up the hope, what does the void allow for? What does that invite back in that are now, that's now uh, available to be summoned by, directly by these people? They can decide what is going to have meaning, what's going to be important, what do we want in place? Even because uh, I was kind of struck about, you know, the airport scenes, people were not, uh, usually what we'll see in stories or in movies in particular is the tension rises. And people can't get along and you got people who want to be in power and then we got to have committees and all, you know, all this nonsense. Somehow all these people got along. They had their jobs and they had stuff happening and there was kids eventually. And yet they were all, they were, they were growing like a little community, but they were doing okay. Yeah. There didn't seem to be, other than, you know, other than the profit out there, uh, like another type of virus, so to speak. And, you know, this group at the airport somehow were, were coming together. People were leaving. They took some, some went traveling and, and took opportunities. Because that was the other thing I was struck by, people moving, the walking. Yeah. yeah, it was it was went back. It harkened back to something old yeah, that sure way. Did. Yeah, uh, yeah. And and yet uh, they all remembered. <laughs> they all you know, other than the newborns, they all remembered what it was like to fly and cars and <laughs> and be able to get anywhere and everywhere and in no time. And yet, walking became just the reality, and they seemed to adapt and and, and accept that. But uh, and the symphony group, um, <laughs> obviously that that was a it was a very big thread for the book, and mm. kind of held it together in the sense of the the roaming. That notion that the people in the symphony were finding community in their roaming group was fascinating in the sense they weren't fixed in a settlement but they were they had effectively their own little community and yet mm-hmm. even with that tent I think the um, same as in the airport uh, with the symphony that I think there was lots of implied tensions mm-hmm. and she didn't she didn't spend a lot of time busting them open them. Yeah. yeah so I, I found that the tensions in the symphony were fantastic and um, and you know you would just you could just only imagine not only the fact that it was a symphony and a, ba- and a, a, a Shakespeare group and that there was all of those people that was a very unlikely duo and a lot of people weren't happy with it a lot of people (laughs) wanted to be a musician or to be doing Shakespeare they didn't want to be doing both and yet they were you know they were clumped together and there were those on one side of that camp or the other and then there was all of these nuances about what was acceptable art form and which was better and which was worse so I really enjoyed that those were left as simmering tensions so that we weren't yeah, they weren't some kind of chirpy traveling crew by yeah. any means. Um, it was realistic. Well, they were very realistic too because yeah. they had guards. They were all weaponized. Yeah. They, uh, they they took what they needed. I mean, they they, they were, were scavengers. They, yeah, were. they were, and, and yet yeah. they also offered this other that we didn't see with anything anything else. Any of the other communities, they offered this other element. Going back, you know, Shakespeare, five hundred years or whatever, that that still had staying power. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the symphony music. 
Yeah. yeah. You know, it wasn't hip hop. It wasn't, you know, uh, rock and roll or all kinds of other things. It went back to classical music. <laughs> and so the, the tying in of those two things is like, so are they, are they threads in our humanity that we don't, that they just, they vibrate within us, they resonate and, and they're embedded and, and, um, somehow that was the right thing to do and the right thing to be out of all, all, of all that. Cause lots of people just stayed where they were, right? If you mm-hmm. found a safe place and maybe there were some other people, you stayed. Mm-hmm. And I think this comes back to how people carry their pasts with them because the symphony and the Shakespearean troupe, those are their roles. You know, they're used to be part of, part of a group and they're yeah. used to having a role. And so they combined them and they carried on doing it because that's what they knew how to do. And like the tattoo on Kirsten's arm and like the motto of the symphony, is it, what is it? Sir, because survival is insufficient. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true. I think we need the art to remind us that we are human. What being human means is that we don't just survive. We have yeah. to make art yeah. to give ourselves hope. Well, and that's like, um, because I was reading a bit like on the internet and of course people are like, you know, varying opinions. Someone was like, what a stupid name. Why did they call it Station Eleven? Or why did she call it Station Eleven? Um, But I think it's actually great because I found this um, uh, little quote on it. It's like, it's Miranda talking and um, she, I think it's after Arthur dies maybe or something, or leaves her and she's working on the comic and she said that the section ends and it says um, station 11 is my constant and, or something like that and I found that really interesting because it was almost everybody's like it, it is the one thing that survived like from even though there's a lot about Arthur it actually like was station 11 like the, the graphic novel that just kind mm-hmm. of was that common thread and so that for me like it made me think like oh like the art the symphony and stuff those are the things that can somehow and keep everyone's us got their thing like yeah. cuz Jeevan has his medicine like he becomes a medical person mm-hmm. he started out wanting to be he knew he was excited because he was interested in being a paramedic and that was the thing that was his constant that carried him through and he became important for that aspect and i think about what what would it be for me like i know i feel sick and scared if i don't have anything to read mm-hmm. so when the apocalypse comes i will stay in the library and i will have all these things <laughs> to read you guys can carry on and do whatever you like <laughs> I also really like, uh, what's his face, Tyler the Prophet, like, and how for him, like, Station Eleven, like, it turned into something, like, kind of horrible. Mm -hmm. Um, So I liked that you got to see kind of both sides of it, um, and I like that it showed kind of one common thing and how we can react differently to it. That's really important, because art can take you the wrong way, too. Yeah. And the fact that uh, Tyler, when he grows up to become the Prophet, is so violent and so absolute, it's really an interesting thing because we can think of art as just this positive touchstone but you can take it wrong you can do bad in the name of art well and how people navigate being stranded I mean Station Eleven was ultimately a a story a manifestation of being stranded and the idea that there is the righteous and that there are people in the right and the Mm -hmm. people in the wrong and that that very dichotomous notion of how people I mean that's for me what Tyler was it Tyler? Yeah. 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 That's what he manifested was this, um, there is no way to understand this except mm-hmm. that there was a reason for it. So therefore there must be this sort of black and white thinking that leads to a very black uh, space that he, of course, calls the light, right. <laughs> which I found, um, whereas that, again, how people were able to deal with complexity and confusion and, and um, that there was a whole array of character mm-hmm engagements with, mm-hmm. with the and mess. reactions and reactions yeah. to the mess and I mean tragically I find him very understandable 
I can yes. you can understand how I mean we know it in our world here a lot of people spend a lot of time convincing other people that they're right I mean it's, yeah. it's how a lot of people's <laughs> and that it, that can be become a very powerful thing yeah. well not just politicians I mean it's what a lot of people do to justify a lot of their mm-hmm. lives is I, right. I've made a choice and I actually do want to be able to explain to you that my choice is right mm-hmm. and that will eventually and that that may mean that your choice is wrong if you, especially if your choice is different from me, I'll be happier if your choice is the same as mine. So those ways in which we deal with how what people's choices are, and mm-hmm. I mean the two that connection between Elizabeth and Clark, and the, that increasing mm-hmm. divergence yeah. of those two characters. Yeah. Because I must admit, I remember thinking, what's going to happen to these mm-hmm. characters? You know, they're lumped together. Here's the ex-wife of Arthur, and here's Arthur's best friend. Of course, Arthur's best friend was gay, but nonetheless, it's sort of are they going to become a proxy? And and she didn't let that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and right. and that was a very that was a very powerful divergence. Obviously, mm-hmm. yeah. I read um, a really interesting review earlier that was talking about identity in it and how it. And we sort of I think this relates to our discussion earlier about boundaries um, and borders and stuff because they were talking about how it's kind of a battle between like the internal and external identity. Like, what's your source of identity when you kind of lose everything? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and they cited um, Elizabeth as an example because. Um, you know, kind of when the world ended, she lost her fame and her validation. Yeah. And so she kind of did get a little scatterbrained. And like, and I think that kind of definitely had an effect on Tyler and like mm-hmm. his sure. upbringing and things like that. And yeah, because she joined that cult. She needed yeah. that kind of yeah. affirmation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. There was when you were talking a minute earlier, uh, chapter 51. I can't give you the page because our books are different. But uh, Dieter's talking uh, about Shakespeare, Shakespeare's work and family, Shakespeare's plague-haunted life. And Dieter says, no, I didn't mean that he had the plague. I mean he was defined by it. I don't know. Uh, do you know what that means, to be defined by something? And I think that's what we were talking about mm, a couple minutes yeah. ago, that how much is this apocalypse now defining people? And I think that's what she's getting into in a lot of ways. And of course, it's open-ended because nobody's a finished product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who are you and all your context is taken away? Who do you become mm-hmm. in the face of a plague or an apocalypse? Mm-hmm. What are your choices? Who do you want to lead? Do you want to lead? Do you want to hide? These are all mm-hmm. questions that I felt when or I was reading the book. do you want to live? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think some people wouldn't. Well, we see that with Jeevan's brother, too. He knows he can't make yep. it. He's in a wheelchair. Yes. Yes. He's not yes. leaving that yes. apartment. No. Their, their story is very touching because their loss happens on such close quarters mm. and some of their loss, some of the losses the characters experience are so huge, you know, we can't even put our minds around no, it. But I think that even the notion of loss has changed as a result of these experiences too because yeah. we don't have the same perimeters, don't have the same meanings going on, everything's been blown up. So then what is the meaning of this or that? What is the meaning of my life? What's the point? Yeah. What's my purpose now? Yeah, what do I want to do? What do I be? Yeah, it's so interesting what they choose too because Kirsten mm-hmm. gets obsessed with those entertainment magazines. She gets yes. obsessed with Arthur. And it is funny yeah. that Arthur's the one point that everyone, <laughs> he's the center of the wheel that all the spokes come out from. But I think that could be if you chose anyone, say we so chose Clark as the center, we would get a different series mm-hmm. of spokes. Mm-hmm. Or me, if it was the story of me, you'd get all my spokes. But I think similar... Um, lines could be drawn but it is interesting how people choose the little things like um, August who's a lovely character 
chooses TV. He's just obsessed with the TV programs he watched as a kid, and he's always telling those stories. And it becomes the mythology yep. that they all think about, too. The stories they tell each other. We would tell each other TV stories. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought, when you mentioned Arthur be, sort of being a hub, is, is, is that's what surprised me, because as much as we have this description of Arthur and his marriages and you know all this thing he just did not come across as a very dynamic oh he guy. dies right away <laughs> you know it's not like he's he's, he's not a, a raging narcissist he's, he's not uh, particularly adept at being passive aggressive he's just he, he, you know things of it's almost passive that things have happened to him yeah yeah and he's kind of grown into it and he's you know and he's become a star and all that but he's not that dynamic to have created these tidal waves of influence no and it makes you think about people like who are the people that have influenced us or who have i influenced inadvertently Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it is fascinating that arthur dies right away like in the first three pages and then yet all these people Mm, are affected by i have like two quotes that oh excellent got very excited about um so with the arthur thing like because this is kind of why i love the book because it just like it started and i was instantly like oh because mm-hmm. um, there's this point in chapter two where it's after Arthur's died and there's a few of his colleagues meeting for a drink in a bar. Mm. And at the end of the chapter, they all um, raise their glasses and they say to Arthur. And then the chapter ends by saying, of all of them there at the bar that night, the bartender was the one who survived the longest. He died three weeks later on the road out of the city. And so I just kind of find that a little symbolic where they're choosing to Arthur and then this this whole story kind of launches into it. That's the and beauty of her writing, too. They all die. Yeah. yeah. And Those little epithets about when yes. people got lost, how long they survived after the point at which she's writing about, that yeah. was very mm. powerful. Yeah. yeah. Because some of them did last and some of them didn't. And mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there was a jarring, almost, like you get into that story for a few sentences and then bang. Yeah. yeah. You get that <laughs> sentence. It's like, that's so great. Oh, yeah, that's, what, that's where we are here. Yeah. This, this is... This, this is... is True. The, the yeah. layers and, and things that are going on. Mm-hmm. And you get immune to it. It's a weird kind of immunity. Mm. It's like, oh, and that, then that person died. Oh, and yeah. oh, that's how but she it died. it brings the future into the present yes. in mm-hmm. a way that I don't think I have read that often. No. So mm-hmm. she acted, because she jumps around so much in timing, she not only is bringing the past into the present, but she brings the future in because we, we know what's going to happen to a number of characters and then we fill in the gaps. And I found that... Uh, yeah, very, very clever because yeah. I, I mean, what well, stretches our minds, but it's are we touching being influenced too. by our future? Mm-hmm. It's a hard thing to... Yeah, <laughs> that's a good uh, question. And like kind of going back to something you were saying earlier, it got me very excited, this quotation. Yes. Um, there's this, after Miranda hears about Arthur dying, um, it says, she was thinking about the way she'd always taken for granted that the world had certain people in it, either central to her days mm. or unseen and infrequently thought of. How, without any one of these people, the world is a subtly but unmistakably altered place. The dial turned just one or two degrees. Mm. Isn't that fascinating? It's the one, it's the one thing I, I liked about her and the writing. She knows how to turn a phrase. Yes. She mm. knows how to keep us moving. There was never any, I don't think there was any stale moments in the story. Mm-hmm. The story itself I wasn't very impressed mm-hmm. with. But, I feel like you're coming but, around but, to it. Yeah, <laughs> I've been thinking about, been thinking about that and I thought, am I changing my mind? No. But I, but, I liked, but I liked her. I liked the way she wrote yeah. because she moved us all the time. Yes. There was something going on or something to ponder. Yeah. Those little, those little sentences, all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, okay. So, you know, I may not agree with what's happening or get what's going on in the story here, but that sentence rings with truth. Mm-hmm. And what do I want, you know, how do I want to hold that for a while? Mm-hmm. 
that I thought was the power of her writing with this story. Mm-hmm. I found so. like, I mean, maybe this is too grand of a statement, but I found there's like not one word wasted. Oh, in yeah, that's story. a grand statement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just loved it. Like, cause I keep, I actually keep reading it to people. I'll be like, you should read this book. And then I'll open it and read something. And I'll be like, what, isn't that great? And they're kind of like, what <laughs> but I, I, I love it. It's not it's like in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. There was never a point where I was like, well, this is boring. I, and I read it twice and I never read things more than once. And I huh. still, it was still had like such an impact. That's true. It was not boring. No, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. And, and it, it's, uh, yeah, but it was not. Yeah, it was not a boring story. It was, it, in fact, in many ways, it was provocative. Yeah, yeah. and I think that yeah. that the provocation and the opening up your imagination to things is something that. Uh, I mean, I read the book in spurts, so I didn't read it consistently. I had these sort of little periods of reading more solidly, and I read the latter, maybe latter quarter, at a clip, so I, that that means, means that the latter phase of the story, pretty much from the, the getting to the airport, uh, that part of the story is a little bit more condensed in my, in my mind, mm-hmm. but she, in the intervals in between reading, it was really present for me, so I mentioned earlier listening to other issues or other podcasts or other things on the radio that were making me think about the way that I was now thinking about what I was hearing now differently because I was reading the book or it was bringing another. So she left a lot of, I think, pretty powerful provocations Mm -hmm. about, and we've touched on it, but this whole question of what we actually need and, and don't need. And here's an example. I was literally sieving, I have a little micro sieve where I, you know, I'm pouring out my coffee and it catches the coffee grounds. And I found myself <laughs> imagining if I had gone into that house that was untouched mm-hmm. and I found <laughs> what objects would I steal from the kitchen yes. drawer yes. put yes. in my backpack as a traveler. And I yeah. recognized that probably not that many because they're all so, I mean, first of all, I wouldn't want to be sieving uh, coffee, but then I thought, no, actually, a little sieve like that might be the kind of thing that I might want to take with me. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, as you said, you referred earlier to the idea of it as a guidebook. And I, don't, I certainly don't think she intended it as a guidebook, but there's lots of little juicy bits in there of like, hmm, think about this. And, yeah. And think mm-hmm. about the things that you really would not need and what it is you need, then you need to be human, not just to, yeah, just to survive. Um, inspiring. You know, and this is why at the beginning I said it's the most beautiful, like, post-apocalyptic book, which I think is true, even if you didn't like the book, uh-huh. right? It's got some beauty. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have anything to compare it to because I've rarely read any other post-apocalyptic stuff. I haven't either. You don't need to. Yeah, I, <laughs> I haven't read any post-apocalyptic books and I probably wouldn't pick them up. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's an aspect of this book also, um, you know, I have a past tense doctor brain, so mm-hmm. I was really glad that I didn't have, to, I mean, I was, there was having a couple of little arguments about the pandemic and so on and mm-hmm. in my mind, but she, she gave us enough detail, but she didn't bother to, to clean it all up. Mm-hmm. She just left a lot. But if she were here, I would ask her, I would say, why did you structure the book this way? What were your choices? How was that hard for you? Why did you choose to do this, this, and this? And then when she said, because I wanted to make you feel this, I wanted to make you think this, and I wanted to do this, I would say, oh, that all makes sense. Thank you. The light light grid at the end. Yeah. I mean, that just, to me, actually, to me, that opened up. Yes. Everything is like, okay, now we're getting to something interesting here. (laughs) And it's the end of the story. Yeah. But I thought, yeah, what a way... 
to to uh, I mean talk about a sequel. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's where the hope comes in, right? She mm-hmm. gives us hope at the end. But that's the interesting thing too. If we gave this exact topic to everybody, they would write a different book. You would, I would, Margot would, Darcy would. Yeah. But she's left us hungry for a sequel, which is kind of entertaining. Yeah. yeah. I feel like <laughs> and a movie. Oh, yeah, I feel like we have a lot more to say. There's things I, we didn't get to talk about, but we are out of time, so I have to end our conversation. But I want to finish off with a quote from the author that I thought was great. She, When talking about it, she said, one of the ways to write... I'm going to bring this up and then be like, you're not allowed to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the ways to write about something is to write about its absence. Mm. Yeah. I thought that was great. Mm-hmm. And um, heartbreaking. So yeah, so unfortunately our time has come to an end. So I just want to thank our panelists. We had Brian, Margot, and Jillian here. And thank you to all of our dear listeners for tuning in. Next week we're discussing Claire Cameron's The Bear, so be sure to check that one out. Thanks Thanks for having us. Thank you. You've been listening to Six for Summer, a radio book club brought to you by the Prince George Public Library on CFUR 88.7 FM in Prince George. Find Station 11 by Emily St. John Mandel on Overdrive for Libraries or in our collection. This initiative is made possible by the Community Fund for Canada's 150th, a collaboration between the Prince George Community Foundation, the Government of Canada, and extraordinary leaders from coast to coast to coast. This week's episode features music by all Canadian artists, including Chad Van Galen, Maple Uno, Vogue Dots, and Haley Bonner. <laughs>